Okay, Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning, specifically in verses 18 through 26. Um, this is such a sweet story that, that we're going to walk through this morning, and probably one that many of you have heard before at some point in your lives. Uh, but let's read it, and then we'll jump back into it. Matthew 9, verse 18, says this. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put, up, put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out through all that district. So going to get a little strange this morning for a bit, but bear with me. Um, when he talks about at the end of this, the fact that they, the, the report went out all throughout the district, or again, we're to set the stage for you guys. We are in the, on the Sea of Galilee. Um, we're in the city called Capernaum, uh, where Jesus' ministry was based out of. And we're introduced to a couple people in this passage this morning. Uh, the first in verse 18, when Matthew calls us, he says, he calls us to behold a, and then anybody, what's that, that, that word up there? It starts with an R. Behold a ruler. Um, not like the one you measure with, but it's a person, okay? Uh, so it's the first of two people. We've got this ruler, and then the second one is in verse 20, and Matthew asks us to behold a woman, he says. So here are these two people that the focus of, the focus of this passage is kind of revolving around this week, this ruler and this woman. There's a handful of things that I want to go through today, just things that we can notice about these two people. The first thing is this. One, notice the stark contrast between these two people. You've got this ruler and you've got this woman. Uh, the, the first one is really obvious, the first stark contrast, the fact that one's a man, one's a woman, right? Pretty easy. Are you guys with me this morning? All right. You're tracking. Okay, one's a man, one's a woman. Sounds obvious. But in a patriarchal society like this Jewish culture, there was a distinction made between men and women in terms of, in terms of their rights, in terms of their status. And so there was a, there was a vast difference between the two genders. Um, so that's one obvious contrast between them. But there's more than that. The second thing, this male is not just a man. No, notice that he's, he's called a ruler. And... Um, when you read both Mark's account and Luke's account, so we, we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, when you read the other Gospel accounts, uh, Mark or Luke's record of the same story, they give a little bit more detail as to what's taking place here. So in Mark 5 and in Luke 8, we find out that he's not just a ruler. They actually say that he's a ruler of the synagogue. And so he's the ruler of the, epice of the epicenter of all things religious in the city of Capernaum. He's got a pretty high profile job. That means he's established. It means he's a leader. It means he would have been given a ton of authority, that he would have overseen people, that he would have been at the epicenter of all things religious in the city of Capernaum. So he wasn't just a ruler. He's a ruler in the most religious place, institution that they could go to in the city of Capernaum in the synagogue. And so in contrast to this ruler, we have this woman, and what do we know about her? We know, and this is where it gets kind of odd, right? She's been bleeding. She's had this discharge for 12 years. 
She's described as a woman bleeding for 12 years, which means based on the law and the time, like if we go back to the Old Testament, um, the, the, the law that kind of um, orca, or, uh, the law that sort of uh, directed their ethics and their morals and their customs, this woman, by the law, would have been deemed ceremonially unclean. So she was impure, according to the Jewish law, because of the state that she's in. Uh, if you go to Leviticus 15, anybody read Leviticus in their free time? It's a really fun one, right? If you really want to get into the law, read through Leviticus. I mean, when we talk about Jesus not abolishing the law but fulfilling it, you can go through Leviticus and watch how Jesus begins to fulfill these things. But it's interesting with this story because in Leviticus 15 it says this. And I, you're going to have to bear with me and I know it gets kind of gross. But if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. Anybody feel awkward that they're here this morning? As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. Everybody get that now? So, this woman is unclean. Culturally, religiously, she's considered an unclean woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. This woman lived in this state of sort of perpetual uncleanness, perpetual impurity for 12 years. And then you've got this ruler of the synagogue. She, on the other hand, this man was permitted to go into the synagogue and was in fact the ruler of the synagogue. But then you've got this Jewish woman that because of her impurity would have actually not been permitted to even enter the synagogue. So understand the contrast that's being developed. Matthew's painting a picture for us. He's contrasting two people. We have to understand who these two people are in order to really understand what Matthew's trying to say. So you've got this ruler in the synagogue. We know in Mark's account, and in Luke's account, that his name is Jairus. And then you've got this woman who will be referred to as woman. That's all she's known by. She's nameless in, these, in the three accounts of the story. So when Jairus, this ruler, would walk down the street, Jairus, as you can imagine, had notoriety. Jairus, people probably clapped. People probably shouted. Like, there goes the ruler of the synagogue. This guy was liked. He was well-known. She, on the other hand, would have been completely shunned in stark contrast to this man. And that's just the beginning. Mark's account of this story says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So she goes to all these physicians to try to figure out what's wrong with her. She spends every dime that she has, every last bit that she has trying to figure out what's wrong and, it to, and to top all of it off as if it can't get any worse, what does he tell us? That she's only getting worse. She's spent everything, she's gone to everyone, and nothing is getting any better. So, do the math. She's broke, destitute, getting worse, she's got nothing left, and it seems like there's nobody around for her and that she can't be helped. Jairus, on the other hand, He's renowned. He, he, he's reputable. We read in verse 23 that Jairus even owned a house, which means that he 
had a little bit more than she did. There was more security. He, we also know that he had a family because at some point there's some from his house that come out to meet Jesus and Jairus and this woman in the streets. But think about this contract. She's bro- contrast. She's broke. Jairus has a house. In fact, a, a small point, but uh, again, he's even given a name. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, this woman is never named. She's just known as the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And so to take this even further, Jairus has this family member who comes out to get Jairus uh, when he and Jesus have stopped to help this woman that's been bleeding. So he has this family, but the nameless woman comes to Jesus by herself with nobody. And this is why I say most likely she was ostracized. She was, she was shunned. She was pushed away from society, her family, because the law said anybody who even touched her would be deemed unclean. So everybody stayed away from her. And it's such a crazy contrast between these two people. If you look at verse 18, notice how Jairus approaches Jesus. It's, it's actually really important. It says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came, Jairus, and he knelt before Jesus. So Jairus actually goes down on his hands and knees at the feet of Jesus. Jairus comes and he kneels before the Lord. And then look at verse 20. Notice how the woman comes before Jesus. And behold, a woman who had suffered from the discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, and she only feels worthy enough to come up from behind Jesus to hopefully just get one last bit of his cloak, but not have any conversations with him. And then in addition to that, in verse 18, this ruler speaks to Jesus, Jairus. And in both Mark and Luke's accounts, they say that he implored Jesus, that he begged Jesus to heal his daughter. But you look at her, and who did the woman speak to? It actually says, for she said to herself. So Jairus feels no problem coming before Jesus, laying down at his feet, acknowledging that, that, that Jesus is somebody, right? But, but Jairus is humbling himself, coming to Jesus, begging and imploring him to heal his daughter. This woman is scrambling through the crowd, trying to do whatever she can to maybe not have to talk to him, but at least to get in there to touch his cloak, because maybe if she could at least touch it, something would happen. So do you see the contrast between these two people? It's stark. And it sort of displays these two different extremes. And I think that's really the point. I think we need to not just see this and then move on with the story, but totally put ourselves in their shoes and understand what exactly is going on. This is about as extreme as you could get at this time. And they're both coming to Jesus. And so that's the first thing I want you to notice this morning. There's five things I want you to notice from this passage. One, the stark contrast between these two people. Two, I want you to notice their shared desperation. Though they are completely different people, their desperation is very much the same. The, the, the desperation for the man is what? His daughter has died. And the desperation for the woman is what? Her condition has only getting, gotten worse, and she's spent everything and gone to everybody, and nobody can figure out what the heck's going on. And so they do share something. Though they don't share socioeconomic status or maybe even religious status, what they do share is desperation. And it's this shared desperation that moves them to this place where Jairus is willing to risk everything. 
He's willing to risk his place, his position, his status, his respect, his banishment from the synagogue. He's willing to risk it all. Like in, in the Gospels, there were plenty of people that did not publicly declare Jesus because it was too risky. They were fearful of being banished from the synagogue. And here's the ruler of the synagogue coming before Jesus, taking the risk as his last ditch effort to hopefully have his daughter healed. And he's willing to risk everything socially in order to have this. And this, this guy's desperate situation leads him to this place where, again, he's willing to wish banish, risk banishment from the synagogue. This woman, on the other hand, has actually already been banished from the synagogue because she was unclean. She can't go in there anyway. And now she's willing to risk total banishment, not just from the synagogue, but she's actually willing to risk banishment communally, like from the community altogether because of what she's doing, because what happens when an unclean woman in her state goes and touches somebody else? According to the law, Jesus has become unclean. So see what's taking place? Like this woman is risking it all to go make this rabbi, this Jesus, unclean. So why in the world would they risk it? And you might think that's kind of a stupid question. Like, why wouldn't they? We know his daughter's dead. We know her health is getting worse. And I think that's a really important question to ask why they would risk it. And I think they risk it because they had a desperation that was beyond themselves. They had a desperation that, that place and position and the best that money could buy could not help them. And so their desperation literally drove them to Jesus as the last ditch effort. How many of you here have ever been in that spot before? Where Jesus was the last ditch effort. You tried everything else. And I want to repeat this this morning so that you can grasp it. They had a desperation beyond themselves, a desperation that place and position, the best that money could buy, could not help them. Their desperation drove both of them to Jesus. And here's the honest truth about this shared desperation that these two people had. We share it too. On our own, left to our own devices, as, as gross as this sounds, we are dead and we're bleeding out. Like, in our best case scenario, without Jesus, we are dead. And that's who we are in this text. We're this woman. We're, we're this ruler. We're, we're this daughter. Like, we share their desperation. And here's what I know as a man living in Coeur d'Alene in 2020 and living enough of his life here to understand the culture that I'm placed in, as hard as I try like, one thing we do not like to talk about, the big white elephant in the room that weaves all throughout this passage that we tend to skirt in our life is death. We hate talking about death. We don't want to deal with it. And yet death is this key theme in this verse from the beginning to the end. And so I began by saying as hard as it was, or as hard as we try to ignore it, because I actually understand that we don't like talking about it. Who in here likes to talk about death? Anybody? If you do, you know, you might be considered kind of gross. But we don't like to talk about death. None of us like to bring it up. Anybody here like to go to hospitals? I know some of you work there. I'm deathly afraid of hospitals. I hate hospitals. As a result of being in them as a child, 
I hate the smell of them. Um, I, I love doctors as people. I don't like going to see them. In, in my 11 years of pastoring in a church, I've had to go sit with people that are dying so many stinking times, and it's so contrary to everything in me to have to do that because I, I you can ask my wife, I'm literally like, pray for me because I have no idea how I'm gonna hold up in this because I do not want to look death in the face. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to feel it. I just want to skirt it. And so we spend our lives culturally skirting death. And in fact, I would actually say that we work really hard in our life to stave death off. Really hard. Even though it's certain. How many of you in here work out? Yeah, nice. 5% of you. The new year is coming, right? <laughs> we'll get a new start in a couple months. How many of you are gluten-free? You've done keto. You're a vegetarian. You've tried all of these different diets. How many of you do workout classes or Pilates? Any Pilates people in here? Anybody do water aerobics? I mean, come on. It's like a new big thing, right? People do these things to try to stave death off. And none of it's bad. But we, try, we live in a culture that is trying our best to get eight hours of sleep, to eat enough protein, trying not to, uh, like, grind too hard in life and just hustle too much, and we're, we're trying hard to get the stress out, and we're trying whatever we can to drink herbal cleanses and do this and that because we want to stave death off. Anybody ever done a master's cleanse before, by the way? My goodness. Like eight years ago, somebody said, you should try this, man. Like, you'll feel really good. You're just going to cleanse your body. And, uh, you know, you might lose some weight. I'm like, oh, cool, I'll try that thing. And so, like, I get on this master's cleanse, and about two weeks into it, I'm not even lying, I start having these heart palpitations, and I thought I was dying. And I end up in the ER, and the doctor's like, your potassium levels are so low. Why is that? I'm like, I don't know. I've been doing this cleanse thing. He's like, you got to stop this, you know, and like I'm trying my best to do something that's good for my body. I'm actually destroying it in the process. But we live in a culture that is doing whatever we can to postpone death because we don't ever want to look death in the face. We don't want to acknowledge that it's inevitable, that it will happen. And why do we do that? Because we want to live as long as we can. And while we're living, we want to be healthy and happy we, we, don't, we want to be able to do all the things. And here's the thing, like, I'm not saying don't do those things and don't take care of your body. Like, 1 Timothy 4, he says, physical training has some value for life now. Like, go do those things. Your clothes fit better, right? You get the beach body in the middle of January. Like, there's some value for your life. So I'm good with taking care of your body, stewarding what the Lord has given you. But it does make you ask the question, are you considering the life to come? Are you considering what's next? Are you considering that, that what you do now actually matters 100 years from now, 10,000 years from now, and all the way into eternity? Paul goes on to say in that passage, physical training has some value for life now, but the verse goes on to say, godliness has value for life today and the age to come. We're not just prepping ourselves for here and now. We're prepping ourselves for the age to come. So when you do your five hours a week at the gym, is it met by five minutes in the Word? <laughs> like, do we spiritually prepare and train as much as we physically train? Because here's the thing, we're all dying, right? 
I don't mean to be like wah-wah, but we're all dying. And we all share a desperation that goes beyond us, this desperation that no matter what title you have, no matter how much money you have in the bank account, no matter how many physicians you have access to, all of that stuff doesn't stop what we all share. It can delay it, but it can't stop it. The best the world can do is delay the inevitable. That's the best. So your millions of dollars in your bank account, your titles, your PhDs, your access to people that will pick up the phone whenever you call, the best any of that does is delay the inevitable, which is eventually you will pass on from this earth. Aren't you glad you came this morning? But this reality is the reason the wisest person that ever lived, Solomon, said, if you have a choice between going to a funeral or going to a birthday, take the funeral. And he goes on to say, because a funeral calls us to consider things that we must consider before it's too late. There's something very sweet about funerals. I enjoy doing weddings, but I'm I'm gonna tell you, the gospel is so potent at funerals because people are staring something in the face that they never wanna look at the inevitable becomes very tangible in those moments. And they start going, whoa, one day I will pass on from here. And what am I doing now? What have I done? And this is why Jesus calls us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He he calls us to live a life where we don't store away in barns here on this earth, but we live a life that considers the life to come and we store up there where, where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't come in and steal. And you live your life here now in light of the one that's to come. And Jesus says, Anthem, like we we actually share a desperation. We share a desperation. The third dynamic that you see between these two people is that they not only share this desperation, but they share a resurrection as well. Um, This young girl's resurrection, like their desperation was met by resurrection. And this young girl's resurrection is really apparent. You read it in verse 25. It says, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. So this crowd that he's talking about, most likely in Jewish cultures, what they would do is they would hire a group of mourners. So somebody died, it's like you go pay cash for a group of mourners to come and mourn outside of your house. And so they would hire you to come and do this. And so um, most likely this crowd that's gathered outside is a paid group of mourners that they've paid to come mourn the passing of this girl. And so when the crowd got put outside, Jesus goes inside. Jesus takes the girl by the hand and he resurrects her. It says that the girl arose. And so here's this physical resurrection that's happening before their eyes. But check this out. The cool part about this text is that there's also a second resurrection that's being hinted at. And the second resurrection that's hinted at, if you look at verse 22, where Jesus, it says, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. This word well is a really important word in scripture. Like instantly, the woman is made well. The, the first resurrection was this physical resurrection, but the spirit the second resurrection was a spiritual resurrection in scope. And so it, it says this because the, the use of that word well means way more than like she was just physically healed. That word well, when used throughout the New Testament, actually means not only were they made well physically, but it actually implied that there was a being made well 
spiritually as well. There was something spiritually happening in her. She's being healed physically, but there's a resurrection of sorts that's happening spiritually within this woman. She's made well. And so the first resurrection of the girls was physical in nature. The second resurrection was spiritual in scope. The Lord takes this woman from old to new. He takes her from lost to found, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so this brings us back once again in the same way as before in desperation. We also share in these resurrections. This can apply to you and I. Like a spiritual resurrection today that can happen in you instantly, immediately. Uh, It actually, when, when the spiritual resurrection happens in us on this earth, we actually are secured a physical resurrection one day. Is that not rad? When you call upon the name of Jesus today and you surrender your life to him, you're not just surrendering now, you're surrendering forever. And so there is a death to life, a resurrection that happens within us. The old is made new. Death to life. But it's not just here and now, it's for eternity as well. There's a physical resurrection coming when Jesus will come back and he will take his church eternally with him. And so this first resurrection, the one depicted by the girl, sort of rests on this second one, the spiritual one that was depicted by this woman. So our our spiritual rebirth today secures this physical redemption and restoration and resurrection when Jesus returns. And that's what we're promised in Christ. I think that what you have here in the book of Matthew in this passage is this really cool picture of what salvation actually is that we have this offer of spiritual rebirth, that we have a physical resurrection and we have a full restoration of the body, that all of that happens when we give our lives to Jesus, when we are saved. And it plays out here in the story. So you see in these two women, there's this young girl and this woman who had been bleeding. But how do we actually share in these resurrections in our life? We do it by following the example of the woman and reaching out in faith and taking hold of Jesus. This is how we share in them. One commentator said, the two things that bring men and women to Jesus Christ are our are deep felt personal need and genuine faith, and the woman with, with the hemorrhage had both. Deep felt personal need and genuine faith. So before I move on to the, this next dynamic, I want to blast through a couple of really neat things that you can see in this passage. I don't know if you, you've picked up on them before, but for me, I think they're, they're kind of cool to notice, these little nuggets that Matthew kind of embeds in there, I think, by the Holy Spirit. But if you look at verse 18, the ruler comes to Jesus, and he's imploring Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And then in verse 22, Jesus turns and he sees the woman. And how does Jesus address the woman in verse 22? He addresses her as daughter. Isn't that cool? He says, daughter, take heart, or take heart, daughter. And so there's more here that the Holy Spirit does through Matthew um, and through Mark and Luke. In Luke 8.42, Luke writes that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. Interesting. And then how long had the woman been bleeding? 12 years. And here's one last thing. Uh, Maybe not as obvious, but I think it's kind of interesting. When Jesus shows up at the ruler's house and he pronounces the daughter dead, but uh, not dead, but asleep. This hired group of mourners is standing outside and they begin to laugh at Jesus, it says. They, they go from mourning, they're being paid to mourn and all of a sudden now they're gonna laugh at him. And they begin to mock Jesus. 
And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? She's not asleep. Like, this, this woman's dead. They don't believe Jesus. And why don't they believe Jesus? Because the daughter was dead. At least from their perspective, the girl is dead. But can I suggest something else to you guys this morning from their perspective? So was the woman that had been bleeding. She was dead. Dead to the world. Dead to them. The outcast of society, she had been shunned. There was no hope for her. She was unclean. So just like this girl, in their, from their perspective, was dead, so was this woman. And so you have two 12-year-old daughters deemed dead by the community until Jesus shows up and he actually restores them both. Isn't that really cool? Um, and then the fourth dynamic is this. This one I think is so awesome. Um, but they borrowed courage and faith. You have this ruler coming to Jesus on behalf of his daughter, and he's saying, Jesus, like, I need you to come, and I need you to raise my daughter up. And then Jesus agree, agrees to, um, he agrees to go on this journey to the daughter with the ruler. So imagine this. Jesus is going with them to the house to go heal the daughter. But what's happening on the way? Jairus is with Jesus. There's probably a crowd following Jesus, and there's probably disciples with Jesus. And they're scurrying through the mix of the downtown area um, of the city. And while they're going through the mix with this whole crowd of people, this woman comes out from behind, gets in there, tries to get her hand up so she can touch the hem of the garment that Jesus is wearing to be healed. But I think it's interesting that Jesus is interrupted by this woman like he's on his way to go heal this little girl he's interrupted by this woman that touches his cloak and the other gospel writings actually say that Jesus feels the power go out of him that he stops that he turns and he addresses this woman for who she is nobody's ever addressed her before nobody's ever given her the time of day Jesus senses the power go out of him he doesn't even he maybe didn't even feel her touch the garment, but he knows that something left him and that she's being healed and he stops and he gives this woman attention. And so isn't that awesome that on the way, Jesus stops and heals and listens to the woman, that he hears her story. This woman did not deserve Jesus stopping to make time for her. Like in stark contrast to this ruler, this woman was damned and ostracized and she's disease-filled and she's broke and she's destitute and she's come on her own and Jesus has stopped for her. And it's so awesome. This part of the story is so awesome. But can I ask you this morning to put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a second? Jairus is going, his intention is to get Jesus hurried to his daughter to raise her, to heal her. And now all of a sudden there's this inconvenience that's happened. And so I want you to imagine that you're Jairus. Like how would you feel with this interruption on the way to your dying daughter? Has anybody in here ever been caught up in a meeting and, and you're late, or you're caught up in traffic, and you're late to a meeting, like you got somewhere to go, something happens along the way, and you just can't make it. This is like the first century version of being caught in traffic and late to a meeting, right? Jairus is probably going like, come on, Jesus, we got someplace to be, man, and Jesus is just taking his time. Two weeks ago, uh, our staff was going to go out to lunch uh, one day, and so we were walking from our office space down to Fire, the pizza place downtown, and we're walking down the sidewalk, and we get by the towers downtown, and um, there's seven or eight of us, 
And I see this man on the side of the road with this car, and he, he's getting out of it, and he's got all this food in his hands. He's got two massive bags. He's got like eight drinks, and he's trying to get everything on the hood of his car and get it situated, and he's sitting there staring at it, trying to figure out how he's going to carry all of these things in his hands to where he needs to go into this tower. And so as we're walking by, um, I, the, I told the staff, like, you guys just go on. I'm going to see if this guy needs help. So I stop. I'm like, hey, man, do you need any help? And this guy goes, oh, thank you, yes. I would love some help. And he literally just hands me two drinks. <laughs> so I grab these two drinks. And this guy's got hands, like two bags and four other drinks. And he's trying to shuffle around. I'm like, this is all you want me to carry? He's like, yep, two drinks. So this is what I'm thinking to myself. I'm literally going to walk these drinks up to the top of the stairs and set them down on the bench so that he can take them in. And I get up to the top of the stairs and the guy goes, no, actually, we're going inside. And I was like, oh, okay. So I follow him with these two drinks, and we walk inside to this office complex, and I'm standing there, and, um, and, he, and, and I go, okay, so I'll leave him here. Uh, no, we're actually going to go in the elevator. I'm like, oh, what? You know, I've become food delivery man now, and so, like, I, I thought he was one of the employees of one of these businesses. Turns out he works for DoorDash, and so, like, um, we get in the elevator together, and he's like, this is awkward, huh? I'm like, yeah, this is pretty awkward. Um, He's like, thanks for your help. I really appreciate it. We go all the way to the top floor of the towers, and we get out of the, the, the elevator, and I walk into this office complex with him, and there's this whole crew of people in this office building waiting for food to be delivered. And I'm just like, I walk in. I'm like, here's your drinks, <laughs> you know, and then I turn around and walk out, and the guy's like, thanks for your help, man. I'm like, yeah, no problem. And, and I'm like realizing I look like the food delivery guy, and I was the food delivery guy. But I get back down, and I'm, uh, there's part of me that's, like, frustrated through the whole thing because I'm thinking, like, I just wanted to take the cups to the top of the stairs. I just want to take them into the office. I don't want to ride up the elevator. I want to have to go in before all of these people in this office complex and hand them their drinks. Like, there's all these scenarios I'm thinking through in my head and reasons why I'm frustrated for what's taking place. And as I'm walking, I'm not walking down the elevator. I guess I was riding back down the elevator, walking out the building, I just felt like Jesus was like, you know I'd go the extra mile for you, right? And I realized in that moment, like I just have this propensity sometimes to get frustrated with any sort of inconvenience that happens in my life. I gotta get the fire. My friends are waiting there for me. I have lunch to eat. I have things to do. And after lunch, I actually have meetings that I have to get in. And I have phone calls later. And so all of these things are gonna set off a chain of reactions that's gonna lead me to just being frustrated the rest of the day because everything's getting pushed back, yada, yada, yada. And Jesus is just like, I'd actually be inconvenienced for you. I was inconvenienced for you. And so as Jairus is with Jesus in this moment, put yourself in his shoes. Like we may never know Jesus's actual reasoning for doing the way Jesus does things in the timing that Jesus does them. But can I suggest that maybe Jesus delayed in part for the sake of the ruler, for the sake of Jairus. This most definitely happens in response to this woman's faith and her restoration, and that was Matthew's purpose in writing this. But I think from a world's perspective, I think her faith, and I think that Jesus' response to it actually serves to strengthen Jairus. 
I mean, how much more are you going to be like, yeah, dude, I want this guy coming with me to the house, you know? This is the guy. Like, come on, Jesus. He just did it there. I know he's going to do it. Like, come on. This would be an encouraging thing for Jairus to see that it's not just some random dude that he's heard about that's healed people, but he just witnessed it firsthand, and now he's going to take this guy to his daughter so that Jesus can heal her. And I think that Jesus always saw the bigger picture. It was never about hurrying from one thing to another, but it was all about the journey for Jesus. And I think that in this one instance, the woman's expression of her faith in Jesus would have actually been a blessing to Jairus on his journey. And it makes me think of this as this amazing picture of the church, actually, that, that all of us stand, are standing on common ground, all of us, like regardless of your position, your title, regardless of your status or your condition, um, that all of us, whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian, black or white, rich or poor, male or female, that we're all standing on common ground. And what is it that we share in common? We all share a desperation. We all need something. We need Jesus. That is our common ground. We have a lot of backgrounds. Some of you in here have seen the worst of it and the best of it. Some of you grew up in crazy situations in life, and some of you maybe grow up in more affluent situations. Whatever it is, there's extremely opposites, extreme opposites in this room right now. But what is it that's binding us together this morning? It's Jesus. And it all started with a desperation for him, because whether you have a lot or you have a little, whether you've got tons of friends or you've got none, whether you have disease or you're totally healthy, at some point in your life, you all will find yourself in desperation. And so we share this deep need to actually borrow and lend strength to one another. I mean, when I think about the church, honestly, when I, when I was thinking about you guys gathering in this building this morning, I'm thinking there are some people in here this morning that are really hurting, that are really struggling, they're stressed out. There's so much doubt right now and uncertainty. There, there's so much skepticism. They're freaking out. They're an anxious mess. And there's some of you in this room this morning that are honestly stoked on life. <laughs> You're doing awesome. Never made as much money as this in your whole life. Your job's going great. Your family is awesome. Your relationship with Jesus is firing on all cylinders. Like everything is going good. And what I realize is when you come together as the church, you actually need one another, don't you? The weak need the strong. But you also recognize the fact that at some point in your life, the weak will be the strong and the strong will be the weak and you're going to need each other and it's going to reciprocate itself. And that's the strength of the church. And I think that this whole picture of Jairus walking with Jesus and witnessing this healing and then going on from there to watch his daughter be healed, I think that there's this strengthening that occurs in the journey along the way. And I think that Jesus could care less about timing and form and function and how things shake down and the, the timing of it all. I think that Jesus cares more about the fact that the journey he has you on is actually working towards something if you're submitted and surrendered to him. It's going somewhere. And you may be inconvenienced with the DoorDash dude, right? <laughs> but there's purpose in it. There's purpose in it. So, to, I'll, I'll wrap it up on this, on this fifth point. What we have thus far was we have the striking contrast between the two, the shared desperation, a shared resurrection, this borrowed courage and faith. And the last thing is this, is that they have this shared experience with Jesus. 
there's five things that I wrote down that like, were character traits of Jesus just in this passage. That Jesus was accessible to them despite the crowds. That Jesus was never too busy for them. That Jesus was available. That Jesus was impartial. That Jesus had power over disease and death itself. And Jesus was all those things to these people. And I honestly believe that he can actually be all these things for us today. But it starts with desperation. We need to see that there are things beyond us that none of us are exempt from, regardless of how much power you have, what your position, your title is, how much means you have or access you have to others. If we don't reach that point of seeing our desperation, we won't be willing to break through the crowd. And if we don't have need, we won't be willing to risk everything for him. We won't be willing to rid ourselves of self-reliance and actually come to Jesus. So where's the risk in your life? I want to encourage you this morning that whether you come from before Jesus, at his feet, or you come from behind Jesus to just try to get touch of his garment no matter what just come (laughs) what's your first step this morning and here's my promise to you is that Jesus will actually stop for you (laughs) that you're not inconveniencing him that you're worth every penny to Jesus we're going to wrap this up and take communion together and Um, partake of the Lord's Supper. And just as a reminder to you, when Jesus shared his last meal with his disciples, the word says that after blessing the bread, what did Jesus do? He broke it, tore it in half, and he gave it to his disciples. And Jesus encouraged them to eat the bread, and he told them that this was his body that would be broken for them. And then he, he takes this cup of wine, or maybe this goblet of wine, and he gives thanks for this wine, and he asked them to take a drink and, and told them that the, this wine was actually his blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he asked them to continue to do this in remembrance of him until he returns, that we are always to continue to remember what Jesus did for us and be encouraged by the fact that he's not done because he's coming back. And so as we take communion this morning, not just as some religious platitude that we're just gonna do it to go through the functions, but in light of the message today, we take communion because we acknowledge that we're desperate. We acknowledge that we are in need of Jesus. We acknowledge that there's no hope without him and that the only way that we can be forgiven is by acknowledging our need for Jesus' body to be broken and his blood to be shed in order to make up for our lack. Is that encouraging to anybody here? Is it? His blood was shed and his body broken to make up for something you could not do on your own. And I think it's cool when we take communion because we often just get into the whole suffering part of it because that's a portion of it. But it also shows us the amount of love that Jesus had for us. And the reality is that there's some of you in this room that would think that Jesus would never stop for you. 
maybe I'll squeeze in, see if I can get a glimpse, touch his cloak, but chances are I'm too far gone. And I want to encourage you this morning that that's not the case, that you're worth every penny, that he was willing to pay the greatest price for you by sharing of his life, by dying on a cross, by having his body broken and his blood shed for us. So as we take communion this morning, I'd just like to remind us of the fact that this is a serious thing that we do. It's not just come grab the wafer and the juice and go back and just eat it and drink it. But I'm going to encourage you guys this morning because I think there's three different people in this room. I think there's some of you in this room. Like I said, you know Jesus. You love Jesus. You guys are rocking it right now. Everything in life seems to be tracking really well, and you have a lot to be thankful for. There's others in this room this morning who are lost as lost can be, wondering if there's even any chance that they can sneak up behind to just get a glimpse of him. And even in doing so, probably believing the lie that he wouldn't stop for them or do what it is that they came for him to do. But you've spent everything, you've tried everything, and nothing else has worked, and you find yourself in this position today where you're actually desperate. And I'd encourage you this morning, there's only one that can satiate that desperation, and it's Jesus. And you may have tried your whole life to find that thing filled in so many different ways, only to get to a place today where you realize maybe Jesus is the only solution, like this woman, like Jairus, getting to a point in your life where you're just ready to surrender. Acknowledge him for who he is. And the last person in this room are those of you who have walked with Jesus but find yourself at a season right now where you just find yourself so fearful and doubting. You find yourself so distant from the Lord and you're not sure what's happened. And maybe you too are convinced this morning that there's just no hope for you and maybe you'll never find your way back. And I'll encourage you this morning that you won't why his body was broken and his blood shed so you didn't have to blaze the trail and find your way back he came to you as we take communion this morning we do this as a church in unity with one another and what I want you to acknowledge as you come take communion this morning is that whether you find yourself in category one two or three you all need one another and this morning we celebrate the fact that we're all a mess we've all got junk and that without Jesus we wouldn't have a leg to stand on and this morning we acknowledge the fact that we desperately not only need him but we also need one another would you stand with me so I can pray for you Jesus, I just want to pray for each soul represented in this room. I ask, Jesus, that you would come in spirit, in might, in power. Lord, for all of those that are seeking and asking questions, nobody could find all the answers they need but you. And I pray, Jesus, they would sense your presence, know that you're with them. Lord, know that you'd be willing to stop and you'd bet the farm for them, that they are priceless and so worth it, and you love them dearly. 
And I pray this morning, Jesus, for your church to come together like no other time before. Because as we look at our world, it's all falling to pieces, God. And there's so much division and there's so much strife. And yet, Jesus, you're somewhere in the midst of all of this calling us together to make you front and center in this mission, in this journey on this earth. And so I pray, Jesus, for those of us who find ourselves freaking out over what could happen in the next week. Lord, I just have this amazing picture of you still being seated on the throne and reminding us that regardless of what the outcome is, you're calling your church together to serve you, to worship you, to be a voice in the wilderness, to literally bring light into the darkness, to point the world back to you in the midst of all its chaos and confusion. And I pray for your church, Jesus, as we come forward to partake in communion this morning, that it would be more to us than some juice and a wafer, that it would actually be us acknowledging that Jesus, you actually shed your blood and your body was actually broken. And Jesus, those things delivered us and we have tons to be thankful for, but you did not stay on that cross, Lord. You rose again and you promised us that the resurrection life of Jesus, the same power that raised Jesus off of that cross would actually be instilled in each one of us. And so I pray this morning, God, for some that would call upon your name, that the Holy Spirit would come and would fill them up for the first time this morning. They would sense your peace and your presence, your leading, your guiding, that they would sense something that they've never sensed before, God, like they are not in control, but you are. We surrender our lives to you. We do this communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of you, King Jesus, and we honor you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.